Hey there, welcome to this excellent church. We believe the word of God is the charter of our lives and God's way to reshape values and reconcile men to himself. We hope this message brings edification, exhortation and comfort. Be blessed. Okay, so this month, as the Lord will help us as a church, we'll be discussing on um, the things that we know and the things that are probable from the revelation of the end times. Hallelujah. What happens hereafter? Praise God. Church, all together. Interestingly, um, apostolic doctrine, having a good doctrine of eschatology is actually very important for your whole Christian doctrine. Your whole Christian doctrine will be strongly affected by your doctrine of eschatology. If you believe certain things about the end of times, it will affect your belief on salvation. Certain Orthodox beliefs on salvation, certain Orthodox beliefs on Christology, the Trinity, all the core central beliefs of Christianity are incoherent or cannot align or agree with certain kinds of eschatological beliefs. So, um, our beliefs on the end times is very important. It's very important. We must believe the wrong, the right things. And now, as a way of beginning, I want, I want you to know that from the get-go, the Lord deliberately withheld us as but deliberately withheld um, some information about the end times. The Lord has deliberately withheld some information about the end times. And as far as I can tell, and a few theologians agree with this, part of the reason why the Lord has deliberately withheld this information is because the Lord doesn't want us to sit down and be expecting the end times. I've been looking for the end times. If the Lord tells us exactly when it's going to come, how it's going to come, exactly what is going to happen, what will happen is that we're going to stop bothering ourselves with what we're doing here and all our faculties and our mind will be geared towards calculating his coming. You understand that? You understand what I'm saying? We'll just sit down and be calculating when he'll be coming and doing everything that we can looking towards that time. So the Lord deliberately refused to tell us some things. Why? Because the Lord is invested in how we conduct ourselves here. The Lord is invested in how we conduct ourselves here. The Lord wants us to use ourselves here as he would have us use ourselves. The Lord wants us to expand ourselves, to apply ourselves in this world according to his will. Because there are certain things that we're going to do for the Lord that is only in this world that we can do them and not after. You understand that? Yeah. There are some things that is only in this world that we can do for the Lord that we cannot do after. So the Lord wants us to make the best of this time. The Lord is not just going to, he's not just going to build something and destroy it for nothing's sake. So the Lord wants us to do some things here. So I'm already warning you ahead. As we go, there'll be a lot of places, there'll be a lot of gaps in our knowledge. There are some things that we'll know, know exactly what it's about. And so that also means that when we look at the scriptures and we see what the Lord says about those parts, what we would have are probable different views of it. Do you understand that? And some things that we'll have, for lack of a better word, guesses, informed guesses. And the nature of informed guesses is that we'll have alternative ideas, alternative points. And so that's why all of us Christians, Orthodox, Protestants, and otherwise that are part of the apostolic church, we all agree that on these matters, 
we have a lot of charity for each other and a lot of tolerance for differences of views because each and every alternative has certain parts of it that are not clear. So there's no actually, there's no view of eschatology that is like foolproof. I mean, in some part, there's some central things that are clear. And some things that are not clear. And all those different views of those parts that are not clear all have their own issues. So you cannot come and now say, my own niece, correct one, anybody that doesn't believe it is a heretic. Hallelujah. Do you understand that? There's some matters like that. There's some matters that you don't believe you're a heretic. My view is the right one. I don't care what you believe. Do you understand that? Jesus is not a manifestation. He's not a force. He's not a form. If you cannot say he's a person, eternal God of the Father, you're a heretic. I don't care. You understand? But when we now talk about certain things, like, are we together? So this month, we're going to be looking at different parts. The first one we're going to do today is uh, we're going to look at about, we're going to look at what happens when we die. What happens immediately we die. Do you understand that? Then we're going to talk about um, the different views of how things, I told you guys, since last year I told you guys that I've been studying it now, Abby, uh -huh. so now I think we can, I've gone to a point where we can discuss it as a church. I would also tell you the part that I guess I feel may be more probable where I lean towards, but we're not dogmatic about. Do you understand that? So we're free to have differences of opinions that we can discuss over time about it. you understand that? But today we're going to be discussing what happens when we die. In subsequent services, we're going to look at other views and other theories of the end of times. Um, the end of times. What's going to be at the end of the world for the world is wrapped up. What happens in those different dispensations? We're also going to look at them and discuss them together. But today, we're going to talk about what happens when we die. Hallelujah. Praise God. And um, from my research... From my research, there are three views that people have, but this one is central, and I think this one can be dogmatic about it. We can be dogmatic about this one because this one is central. These are one, this one is, if you have different views on it, it actually affects your soteriology. Yeah, it will. So affect your soteriology. Soteriology is um, the study of salvation. Is that okay? Praise God. Are we together? This one is discussion, Bible study, so you guys will. Be giving me, giving me life. Hallelujah. So there are three views as far as I can tell. There's the view of purgatory. There's the view of sleep. Of the, of it, of a sleep, to death sleep, where we sleep and we'll be unconscious. Our souls will be unconscious until Jesus comes to judge us. And then there's a theory that we, as we sleep in this world, we wake up to be with Christ. Hallelujah. We wake up to be with Christ. So there's one of sleep, and that one of sleep is that you will sleep until you wake up to judgment or torment, right? And then the one that we actually, when we die in this world, we wake up immediately to be with the Lord or to go into hell. So nobody's sleeping. There's no rest for the wicked or for the righteous. <laughs> Hallelujah. So we're going to discuss the three of them. I'm going to look at the scriptures where, we got this, where the three of them come from. And we are going to discuss them, all right? Now, let's start with purgatory. Can we do that? Okay, so for my research, there's only one scripture in all the books that Christians call, Christians generally call scriptures, where it seems like people can go to the place of the dead and their prayers can work for them. And their prayers can work for them. Hallelujah. 
I think it's 2 Maccabees. Does anybody have Apocrypha Bible? Because you can open it. You have Apocrypha Bible. Let me search for that scripture. 2 Maccabees 12, have Judas, the ruler of Israel, took up a collection among all his soldiers, amounting to 2,000 silver drachmas, which he sent to Jerusalem to provide for an expi expiatory sacrifice. Expiatory sacrifice. Should I continue? In doing this, he acted in a very excellent and noble way, inasmuch as he had the resurrection of the dead in view. For if he were not expecting the fallen to rise again, it would have been useless and foolish to pray for them in debt. But if he did this with a view to the splendid reward that awaits those who had gone to rest in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Thus he made atonement for the dead that they might be freed from this sin. You guys hear that? So, um, again, have you guys heard of the Maccabean revolt before? So, the Maccabean revolt was a time when the certain family called Ma of Maccabees, their brother, I think about three brothers, they revolted. I think they are from the Senate of David also. This happened about 300 BC, 200 and something BC. I think second or third century before, before Jesus was born. And there was a revolt against the Seleucids, I believe. Yeah, the Seleucids. Yeah, the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid Empire was an inheritance, was the one of the Greek or Hellenistic empires that took over from um, what's his name? Alexander the Great. So anyway, there was an empire that was ruling Judah at the time. I believe it's the Seleucids, and the um the these Maccabean family boys, these brothers, they did a revolt and fought against them, and they won. That's where Hanukkah comes from. The last night of the fight, something happened where they put the candle in the temple because they had used all the oil. There was no oil in the whole of Jerusalem. And there was a little candle and they put more oil inside. And the oil burned till, I think, till the next morning or till the end of the fight or something. So they believed that supernaturally God was adding oil for the candle to not be burnt out. And that's where Hanukkah comes from. So during the Maccabean revolt, Judah, I believe, was the second born or the third born. The one that Shah finally won the battle, I believe. I'm sorry, the history is a little bit fuzzy. You can check it up. It's fuzzy in my mind. So... He was collecting a he was collecting offering on behalf of people that already died, who fought in the war that already died, and was going to send it to Jerusalem to the temple. And he believed that the offering he was collecting from people, those people they were giving that offering and to help their family members who had slain to make atonement for them. Do you understand that? So that's where there is an explicit idea of people going to a place of the dead and where prayer can can be prayed for such people and they can come out from purgatory, from where purgatory was. And so that's where the idea of purgatory began to come from. Now, obviously, um, it's problematic. And you guys understand how apocryphal books... And you guys know how the apocryphal books came about to be, right? The apocryphal books came about after the prophets of old were prophesying, before Jesus came. So even by Hebrew standards, Hebrew Orthodox Hebrew standards, those books are not considered... Scripture that considered apocryphal, even though obviously during the time of Jesus, some of these apocryphal books were around, people were quoting them, right? But they did not have the kind of authority that the book of the prophets had. Do you understand that? And even though the early church, um, the early church, because those books were around, the early church put them in their Bibles and all that, but 
those books still never had the kind of authority that those other books had, right? They didn't really have the authority that those kind of books had. When we Protestants came along, we looked at it, and you guys have heard me talk about this a lot of times, right? So we, we looked at it and just felt that these books are not on the same level, and there's a reasoning for it. They're not on the same level of authority. So they are good for reading, but they're not on the same level of authority of Scripture. So what we'll do is that we'll just put it at the back of our Old Testament book. But over time, people stopped bothering reading them, and there was a time in the 1800s when there was no paper for Bible, and the book was, those parts of the book, stopped, we stopped printing them and all that. So, and the reason, obviously, why we'll have issues with taking second, second Maccabees and all that is that it's not the prophets that said it. It's not the Lord that said it. It's not the apostles that said it. Let me rehash something again for our reminder. Every book that we consider inspired, the authority of every document rests on the person of Jesus. Jesus is the endorser of, the, of any document that we consider authoritative. And this is the reasoning of the early church. And this is how Jesus endorses a book as authoritative for us. If Jesus considered the book authoritative, because Jesus is the Logos, Jesus is God manifested to us. God came to us. If God came to us, and tells us Moses and the law and the prophets are the word of God. What does that make them? The word of God. So all together. If the, if the Lord comes and tells us that the Tanakh, the prophets, then the, the, the writings, which were the Psalms and Proverbs, were part of the prophets. They were considered part of the prophets. So if he tells us that the law and the prophets are the word of God, then they are what? The word of God. When the Lord was around and people wrote directly about him, that makes those writings to be what? Authoritative because the Lord came and we need to know what the Lord said. So if someone that writes about what the Lord did and said is authoritative. So the Lord's presence in that authority, Jonathan, endorses it. When the Lord was going, he gave his word to some people. He handed the message to some people. Those people wrote down the message to us. Therefore, what they wrote is what? Authoritative because what they wrote is what he told them. Paul said, it's not my gospel, but what I received. History revealed. Do you understand that? Peter says, we're not following clever device people, but what we saw and what heard. John said, what we saw with our eyes, our ears, and our mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's why we believe what we believe. Because everything rests on Jesus. Do you understand that? Second Maccabees is not in that value chain. So, we Protestants are right to not follow it. Amen? I don't know if there will be any advocate for Orthodox people in the church today so that we can talk about it. Hallelujah. There's other scriptures that our Orthodox brethren may also look at, look at to think of purgatory. I, can, I, I know of at least four. So let's look at them together. We can discuss them to see if we think it jives. Second Timothy chapter 1. Let's read from verse 16. He says, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day 
you know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. So, um, having read this, we don't need to read the Greek or the Hebrew. Having read this, Paul is telling us that somebody helped him and is praying that the person received mercy before God on that day. Um, what does this look like to you? So, in this meeting, you have to pay attention so that you can follow. What does this look like to you, Glory? It looks like the writer of Hebrew saying, um, you are not of those who draw back into partition, like saying, child of God, uh, that that life is ours and stuff. It's not like saying, this guy is dead, and we are begging God to get him access into life. So it's like a pastoral prayer kind of thing. I think I have similar thoughts. Any of us have any other thoughts? Anybody have different thoughts? I go to the call now, all this one that people are doing. Anybody have different thoughts? Okay. Just looking at it as it is, it just looks like a sort of supplicatory prayer in which um, Paul, in his apostolic might, is sort of beseeching the Lord to um, give um, Onesimus, Onesiphorus a special um, place at that day. I completely agree with you. I think that's where it looks to me. Anybody, I mean, does anybody have a different thought? Um, the folks... Orthodox folks will say they believe that Onesiphorus was actually dead. So Paul was praying for him that even as he's dead, when he rises up for judgment, God will have mercy on him. But first of all, that's, that conclusion, you can't get that conclusion from this text. And there's no supporting document that gives us that conclusion that Onesiphorus was actually dead. And even if he was, this is just a man of God praying that, like in the Yoruba, maybe it's the course of English and all that. You know, just say, do you understand that? Uh, in fact, you can go try for me. Do you understand that? In Yoruba, that means that God will use heaven to pamper you. I don't think it's deeper than that. Does anybody think it's deeper than that? Not, not like it's deeper. It's just that um, I don't think it's I just call on for okay. I think it's like there's, that, there's this thing we sing um, what we sing on Aston, the last verse um, uh, oh, may I then in him be found? So he's saying that um, when I when the trumpet sounds, oh, may I in him be found? It sounds like that to me. Yeah. Okay. That that's that's good actually. That's good, right? So, um, so I don't think it's Paul because when we're interpreting scriptures, we're trying to find what the person meant to say. I don't think we are justified to assume that Paul meant to say that his prayer would somehow give Onesiphorus an, a different atonement or expiation apart from what Jesus did that would apply in purgatory. I don't think that's what we can get from that, right? Matthew chapter 5. There's another one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 25. Very funny. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together or on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So, there are some exegetes that will say things like, if you are handed over to a kind of spiritual prison, um, you will not come out until you have paid the last penny. Ah, I'll put it a dog hole. <laughs> That you, 
Well, so you pay the last penny before you come out. Hallelujah. I think this is obviously talking about normal court case, isn't it? This is physical court case in this world, isn't it? I don't think it's deeper than that. Anybody have a different idea? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. I think everybody knows this one. This is the one about your work should be burned. 1 Corinthians 3, from verse 10 to 15. We all know the story that, you know, the work should be burned, and but a man will escape. If a man builds here, I also store and all that. Um, you know, if a, if, a, if a man builds high on here, and store and all those kind of things. Abby, this one is the man's work, not the man. And there's nothing about it that says that an atonement will be done that will save the man. Does, any, does anybody have a different view? Right? Matthew 12, verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either at this age or the age to come. The assumption here is that there's an age to come where forgiveness can still happen before judgment. What do you guys think? I heard that Watchman said that uh, I read Watchman said that uh, um, so there will be there will be the millennial reign of Christ, the one thousand years where there will be the edition interpreted as it um, is long. So um, people will still people can still fall fall away from grace. People can still fall away from grace, and um, I don't know, but people will do that's true. I left the strongest one to the last. All the other ones that to me are flimsy. I left the strongest one to the earth. The age to come. There's a forgiveness of the age to come. Who believe? Do you want to say something? I don't know. I don't know, man. Because the text, the protestant if you want to shout, ah, it's, it's uh, hyperbole, um, hyperbole, right? It's, it's just fair to God. Not, not is going to happen. But, Church Father Rita and me cannot do that in clear conscience. <laughs> See now, because I mean, of course, there's the allegorical way of reading scripture, and then there's the um, exegetical way of reading scripture. And then, if you're going to be exegetical, sorry, to, for small English, you're going to be technical with the text. It doesn't come off as it communicated that there's another end, because it's literally just one comment to the whole thing. But I mean, we have protesters that believe in dispensationalism. Which is that there are two areas that is there, there are two coming, two comings. Christ is coming first. I mean, that's a popular one I had in secondary school. When Christ comes, that's first boss. All of us that are saved will go. Then we leave people behind. And then the ones that we leave behind, they will suffer, suffer, suffer. And those ones that can endure the suffering, those are the ones that will be saved. That, that's a type of purgatory. Yes. So it kind of, I, I don't know, I can't say. Okay, any other thoughts? I think the text um, is somewhat similar to the way Paul um, puts it in Ephesians to when he says that God showed his kindness towards us for the ages to come, so that um, the work of Christ in our age will translate to eternity, to all ages to come, so that if anyone in this age would reject um, the work of Christ, that will translate to the ages to come, not as though there was another age in which there will be some special kind of concession in God's part. So I think it's what, what, what Christ has done now, whether you reject it here in this age, it will translate to the age to come. Whether you accept it now, it will translate to the age to come. Hallelujah. 
Any other thoughts? Anybody? Okay. Okay, so I believe that when a man rejects the gospel, um, it will, just like Bofemi said, it will translate to who he is and um, to eternity. So, <laughs> so it's just, it's not like, okay, there's another thing entirely or there's another word entirely. So if he's an unbeliever, he's still an unbeliever till he probably believes the gospel. Hallelujah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it like a protestant. I don't think, I really don't think, I don't think, if we look at, look at the whole thing, remember the mind behind when we're doing Bible study, we're trying to see what the person meant to say, we're trying to see what the Lord meant to say. And one of the things that helps to, one of the things that helps people to know what the Lord meant to say is to, if the Lord says something in a place that is unclear, if we look at what he said in other places, we can, we can tell what he meant to say in that place. You understand that? Because what a person means to say in one place will cohere with what he said in other places. It will follow what he said in other places, right? And from everything that the Lord tells us, right, we know that it is appointed for a man to die once and after that it was judgment. So that the way a man con conducts himself here, the Lord will judge him for the things that he has done. So the Lord at different points will tell us things like, feed my flock, if, if you don't feed the little one as of this, on that day you will say, Lord, master, master, I know you, but I will say, I don't know you. What that means is that what the person has done in this age will affect what is going to happen in the age to come. So I, from everything that the Lord has said, I don't think this is to tell us that the age to come somehow has different rules from this current age. I don't think or, the age, or in the age to come is to suggest that the age to come has a different forgiveness pattern or atonement pattern or um, expiation pattern than the one that is in this world. If a man, having known the Holy Spirit, rejects the Holy Spirit's offer, nothing can be done for him in this world and obviously the next to come. So I don't think a doctrine, a sophisticated doctrine of the idea that, and when we talk about the doctrine of progress, it's not just that so people die and go to a place. It is people that have been baptized. When they die, you know, after you've been baptized, you are working out your salvation. That is the soteriology. They are working out your salvation, right? Now, if you don't act properly and you commit some mortal sin or some kinds of sin and your righteousness, you have not worked out your righteousness properly and the person passes, the person will go into purgatory and then in purgatory, the person will, people can pray for you and then after, after suffering long enough, um, Virgin Mary will come and lift you into heaven so that you can go into heaven. I don't think all that can be inferred from this. So no, I don't believe that the scripture supports um, um, the idea of a different world where people will suffer and, um, you know, and all that. Praise God. So uh, I think we can be dogmatic about this. I, will, I think we can be dogmatic about this one. No, it's not, it's not for us. Hallelujah. I don't think I don't think Christians should believe in purgatory. I don't think so. It might have come in at the time and become popular at the time in the church history, but that does not mean and because number one, it came later. I mean, it's not first century, second century stuff, right? It came later, became sophisticated over time when the organization became corrupt and all those things. So I don't think it's something that we can, um, you know, we can take seriously. Hallelujah! Praise God.
So let's talk about sleep. There is another thought and belief that when we die, we'll sleep and be in a kind of limbo until on the day of judgment, the Lord will appear with the, from the heavenly host and wake up everybody that is asleep and he will judge the righteous and he will judge the evil doer. Hallelujah. Praise God. Okay, I think um, somebody put something on the group page, have you? I'm getting notifications from church. Okay, okay. Elder said, uh, the age to come, that, um, that Jews refer to it as a messianic period. Right, it's possible. It's possible, but you know, we are even looking at it from the lens of Christians. Hallelujah. The story of the all-forgiving servants in Matthew 18, the end of the story, when the master was giving his judgment, he says, As should you not have had mercy on your own servants, as I had mercy on you, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should have paid all his debt. So my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive from your heart. Okay, so meaning that maybe the jailers, him handing over to the jailers is paying all the debts. No. Um, no. What, if you look at that parable, what the Lord is demonstrating, that's why you have to be careful with every kind of analogy. Even the Lord's analogy, you cannot bend them or expand them beyond the scope of the message that they are communicating. What the Lord is also obviously telling us is that people who don't, if an unfaithful servant, the Lord will judge. That's Proverb, that, um, what they call it, parable, is not teaching us about the nature of purgatory, of heaven and hell. It's telling us about God's justice. So when the, when the Lord says that he's going to hand him over to jailers and all that, he's just talking about how the Lord is going to judge all the evildoers. It's not a comment on the fact that people can go and pay for their, for their, for their sins. Do you understand that? Because the direct implication of that statement is that a man can pay for his sins and it should be okay. That it can be sufficient. You can pay for your sins enough and to be sufficient to pay for your sins and go and get into the presence of the Lord and have fellowship with God. But I mean, this is Christianity 101. No man can pay sufficiently for his own sins. Am I right? It will take you eternity to pay for your sins. So, you know, that's it. It's like using the lost proverb on, give me, give me one of the popular proverbs. Uh, maybe the, the parable of the sower. And I'll say that. Um, you know, that means that nothing is coming to my head now, but well, you understand what I'm trying to say? That what the parable is focused on is what it should be used for. It shouldn't be used beyond the scope of what the Lord intended to communicate. You understand that? So, so yeah, it's a good one. And I'm sure that will have come up. So, so people will say it made them pay for everything. No, I don't think so. Hallelujah. Praise God. Or does anybody have any different thoughts? Any? See, all of you are just looking at me. Okay, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 24. So the Lord is, um, someone had died and he said, go away, the girl is not dead, but asleep. Hallelujah. So do you see that? Let's read it. There are many like this. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 51 says, at that moment, the question of the temple, which is what Jesus died, on the cross was turned into from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, and the tombs were rock, and the tombs were broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to death, were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Hallelujah! So it looked like as if the people who had died were resting, and then they came back to life. You understand that? 
John chapter 11, um, this, is to, this is talking about when, when um, Lazarus died. And the Lord said, uh, uh, verse 11 says, after he said this, he went out, out to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. So suggesting that when Lazarus died, he was, his soul was in a kind of um, unconscious state waiting to be, to be awoken on judgment day or when the Lord wants to resurrect you. Obviously, like this, like this case. Acts chapter 7, verse 60 says, Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he has said this, he fell asleep. Speaking about Stephen. So, I mean, did he, when he died, the Bible says that he was fell asleep. Um, I believe Acts 13, verse 36. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed, fell asleep. So there are a couple of them. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. This one is strong. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 6 says, After he had appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. You see that? Verse 18 says, Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Talking about those evil faith is futile. Verse 20 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 51 says, Verse 51 says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Praise God. So you see that? So it's like over and over, you see asleep, 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 asleep. You can check 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. I write it down. Let's look at Psalm 6. Write down 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, the same thing. Psalm chapter 6. I want to read some Old Testament scriptures. Psalms chapter 6, verse 5. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? Suggesting that when you are dead, you are in some kind of unconscious state and you can't praise God. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 says, Whatever your hands fight to do, do with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working or planning or knowledge or wisdom. So that means in the place of the dead, people could just die like that. <laughs> Isaiah, <laughs> Isaiah 38, <laughs> Isaiah 38 verse 19 says, The living, the living, they praise you as I am doing today. Parents tell your children about your faithfulness. Isaiah suggesting that it's the living that can praise God. Hallelujah. And so finally, let's look at Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Verse 17 says, it is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. So there's a place of, according to, if you read it like this, there's a place of silence where everybody will be silent. So a lot of scriptures actually, um, you know, the place of silence, the place of the dead cannot praise God, they go to a place of silence. What do you guys think? What do you guys think? Eh? You choke. And that's why actually there's a substantial amount of believers that a, a good portion of believers that actually believe this, that will sleep and, and all that, but the, the scriptures against it are so many. As, as much as this one choke, the scriptures against it, it choked. So. Anybody have any thoughts? Please pass this mic around. Let me make another tradition. Even tradition has different views. Ah, it's hard to say. Oh. My research has not gone that deeply. My research has not gone that deeply to tell where tradition leans more. 
So I have not my research. I'm not. I'm not going deep enough. And I just you know looked at it and I know that obviously the the two views of sleeping and not sleeping are, are all there. But there are some things that the Lord said that makes it difficult. That's why I mean, that's why all of us do not go the way of sleep. Let me show you a verse. First Thessalonians chapter five. Verse 10. <laughs> he says, He died for us. Are we there? He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Whether we are awake or asleep, we, live, we may live together with Him. So when we are awake in this world, alive in this world, we are living with him. When we are asleep, we are living with him. So the sleep is not a comment on the state of the person's soul, but our view of the person in this world. So they are falling asleep to us. He's not talking about their state on the other side. So it's because he's telling us clearly here that while you are asleep, we are alive together with him. Or we may live together with him. Praise God. So that means that there is no gap in life. Do you understand that? There's no gap in life. And you know, let's look at a couple of scriptures. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. It says, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So that means that when we are away, with, away from our bodies, we are at home with the Lord. We are with the Lord. Just like what Apostle Paul says here. When we are asleep, we are living with him. You see that? Church, you get that? When we are away from the body, we are living with him. Hallelujah. Look at the way Apostle Paul describes his own situation. Philippians chapter 1, from verse 21. He says, For to me to live, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart. And be with Christ, which is better by. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. So when we are away from the body, we are with the Lord. We are not unconscious and asleep in the place of the dead. We are not in limbo. So that's why Paul just says that when we are asleep, whether we are alive in this world or asleep, we are alive with him. So, let's look at everything. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 from verse 38. This is talking about when Jesus was on the cross, crucified. It says, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him are you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. You are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He says that we are punished justly. Ah, 
No. Look at what Jesus said. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's why you don't need to say the Lord's prayer in a particular way. What you need to say is, I deserve my sins. Lord, help me. You have said it. Do you understand what just happened here? That way that acknowledge that I deserve my sins. And then turn to Jesus and say, I know you are the one that, help, that can help. Help me. Ah, and look at what Jesus gave it, gave it back to him. Said, Jesus said, Ah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Say, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I tell you today, you will be. He says, Truly I tell you, come on, today you will be with me in paradise. Hallelujah. Praise God. When the Lord says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He said, Truly I tell you. It's almost like a man say, When night and night, will be like, A man, not Jesus. Again. Praise God. Do you understand that? He says, Truly. But he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. For you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Righteous men are not sleeping. They are alive. Hallelujah. Praise God. The righteous men are not sleeping. They are alive. So Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, covenant after the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel. Hallelujah. The just men are not sleeping. They are alive. They are alive. Revelation chapter 6. Verse 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, true are holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed, just as they had been. So after they had been slain, they were alive to the Lord. Do you see that? After they had been slain, they were alive. We go to chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, and language, Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes, they were hiding, they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces on the, on the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to be to our God forever and ever. And then one of the elders asked me, these in white robe, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know, and he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. So these people were killed in the tribulation. They were martyred in the tribulation and they stood before God, praising God before the elders. And this was before the judgment throne. This was before the judgment throne. So, Anybody that dies before the day of judgment, when you sleep, you are waking up to see Jesus. Hallelujah. Yes. You are waking up to see Elijah. You are waking up to see Moses. As you sleep and you wake up, you see Paul. <laughs> Hallelujah. 
You're not going to be some kind of limbo. That's what Apostle Paul had to explain to us. Whether we are alive or we are still, we are living with him. In this world, we have our bodies and the Holy Spirit is inside of us. We are with him. And when we sleep, we're going to live with him also. Hallelujah. Praise God. So yes, if you sleep in this world, you are going to wake up immediately. Today. Hallelujah. Today. Somebody say today. Somebody say today. <laughs> Question. Please pass the mic to Brother <laughs> oh. Yes. So those are the things that we're going to look at now. Those are the things that those are the things we're going to look at. Um, um try to remember the context of I know I, I remember saying that actually, that uh, it would be like when you sleep and wake up in this world before judgment, it will be like the same thing as those who wake up um and you know and all that. Try to remember the context. However, right, um this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. I think this is a better way to put it than whichever way I put it before. I'm trying to remember the context, so I can't even remember how I said it, you know. But if it was different from this, I believe this is better. This is a more accurate way of putting it. It's actually today. There's, there's no sleep. Sleep is popular. A lot of people believe sleep. I probably believe sleep too. It's just that I'm realizing how fuzzy. It was never always clear. Anyway, I've always told you guys that I, I was working it through it. I was studying it and all that. But I think now it feels it's much clearer. I'm going to look at a couple of things. When you look at the whole body of knowledge and everything, and I'll also tell you where the questions are. Because the other things that you raise, we're going to see it now. You know, we're going to see where the questions are. So that we can, you know, put, look at everything. Right? Because this also affects the question of the Old Testament saints. What happened to them? Because if you sleep and wake up immediately, and Jesus has not died. Do you understand that? If you sleep and wake up immediately, and Jesus has not died, how did you wake up in the presence of God? Let's start from Luke chapter 16. From that parable. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple. We know the story, right? Let's just jump to the end. So from verse 19, verse 23 now says, so they were buried, and then in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony and it's fire and it's in fire. I'm, and in, I'm in agony and in this fire. So that means that this guy was in hell and that guy was with Abraham. That Abraham bosom that we will see. It means he was with Abraham. That means wherever Abraham was, that's where this guy was. Do you understand that? But we also know that Abraham was declared righteous because he believed what God told him. Church, just say that. So this is another scripture to show that Abraham is not sleeping. Abraham is alive in paradise. And Lazarus that died was with him. And the other one was born. And there was a chasm between them. And they could not come together. Church, just say that. Do you understand that? Now, there's another thing here that's of great importance that Jesus actually said. He said, the, the guy begged Lazarus to come and dip water in his mouth and everything, and Abraham said it was not possible because where we are, where you are, is too far. It cannot, we cannot come closer. And the dagger now said, okay, please send him to go and preach to my brothers and sisters. And that one now said that, see, they have Moses and the prophets. If they cannot listen to Moses and the prophets, nothing can happen to them. Not, nothing can help them. That gives us the second thing. It means that when a man dies, as in that place, there's no 
nothing that can change the story. It means that it is irretrievable. Do you understand that? It means that the man's situation was irretrievable. Nothing could be done about it. This is another reason why the purgatory thing does not work. So nothing could be done. Nothing could be done for the person. Nothing could be done for the person. So this is another scripture here showing us that Abraham is with the Lord. The just and perfect are alive and they are with us and they are watching us. Hallelujah. So the Old Testament prophets are with the Lord. In Genesis 5, verse 24, the Bible tells us that Enoch, that the Lord took Enoch. He took him. In 2 Kings 2, verse 11, the Bible tells us that the chariots of fire took Elijah and were with him. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 to 5, the transfiguration, you can write it out. Matthew 17, verse 1 to 5, on the transfiguration, we, were, we see that Elijah and Moses were there. They were not asleep. Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22, verse 29, look at what the Lord says here. He says, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Do you see that? But about the resurrection from the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God, he is not the God of the dead, but of the what? Living. So, the Old Testament prophets are not dead. They are not asleep. They are alive. And so the same thing applies to us. We will wake up to be with the Lord. Hallelujah. Um, you know, this is pretty, 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 pretty um, clear. And obviously, the same pertains to the unbelievers, those that reject the gospel of Christ. When they die, they will wake up into something else. You know, there's a lot of evidence that is piling up from um, um, what they call it NDEs, that's um, near death experiences. A lot of people will tell you that they lived their life, they rejected the gospel, and then they had near death experiences and they were already on the way to hell. And the racist demons were already welcoming them. And somehow God had mentioned them and they came back. And you see, believers also have the same experiences. They will die and then they were already seeing the Lord. And then they woke them up and they were like, Bro, if I don't wake me now, it's actually true. People are not going to sleep, we're going to wake up to be with the Lord. And people who die are actually going to wake up to hell. That's the truth. We're going to wake up to hell. So that's why we actually have to warn every man in Gali. If they die today, there's nothing like purgatory. They will wake up to hell. It will be shocking. It will be like one moment the person is walking on the road and boss just hits the person and then the person just wakes up and does his demon like this tonight is in front of him. <laughs> oh my God. It's funny, but it's true. I say believer that is suffering maybe cancer or something and the person is on the deathbed and the person is in pain and then finally just finally gaps and gives and gives away and the person just wake up and who is this thing? Paul say you try. Stand up my God. Hallelujah. Let's look at what happens to unbelievers. Matthew 25 Matthew 25 verse 31 I don't think I read the whole thing. But I don't think I read the whole thing. But it just tells us that, see, on that day, uh, he's going to judge the living and the dead. Revelation chapter 14. So Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, because of time. 
Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 to 12. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receive his mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has poured full strength in the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. Now, follow. He now says, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commandments and remain faithful. Hallelujah. So you see that those who follow Satan, who follow the beast, he says that they are going to be thrown into a fire and they will not have rest. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beasts. Hallelujah. But see something. So these are talking about those who have died. Now, John chapter 5. Now this is where things are not clear. And I'm going to tell you what I am sus suspecting. Or what I believe I we're going to discuss it. Verse 28 says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and they will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is judged for I, just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, verse 15 says, and I have the same hope of in God as these men themselves have, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So what the apostles are telling us here is that there's a resurrection. If we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, should we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to the end? If we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you will see that a time is coming when the Lord will come and he will raise those, those of us who are alive, we lifted up with him and all flesh will see him. And then those who are dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous, will also rise up with their new bodies and then we're going to be judged finally. Hallelujah. So that means that after men have, have died and they have gone to heaven or gone to hell, there will be a final judgment where people are going to receive their eternal reward. Do you understand that? Church, are together? Now, um... Okay, so first Corinthians chapter 15, you can go and read that. At this point, I have a theory. Should I say my theory? I have a theory. Okay, do you know why I'm saying that? Let me show you what I'm thinking. Let me show you what I what I saw. Revelation chapter 20. From verse 7, look at Let me just anticipate and say, if you have an amillennialist view, just hold that in your left hand, I will explain what it means. But if you have an amillennialist view, which believes that the tribulation and the millennium is happening right now, look at this from that perspective. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, gather them to battle, and they are like the sand of the seashore, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but he came down from heaven and devoured them. 
And the devil who was with them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur with the beast. And the first, okay, sorry. Uh, sorry. So I start from verse 1. Let's no, start from verse 4. I saw thrones on which they were seated, those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years, right? So, um, so these people, if you have an amillennialist view, it means that these people woke up. That when they died, they woke up with the Lord and they were with the Lord in heaven, reigning, right? You will see why an amillennialist view is the one that fits perfectly with this waking up to be with the Lord. We'll talk about it next, next Wednesday. Verse 5 now says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until, until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God, of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, he will go out to deceive the earth, Gog and Magog, and all that. And then verse 10 now says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. Church, you see that? So, um, some people were with the Lord reigning. At the end of that period of the Lord reigning, um, some people, them, some other evildoers woke up to challenge the Lord, and the Lord threw, threw them into the lake of fire, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That means it's talking about conscious torment. God is consciously tormenting them, like they're in hell. Then verse 11 now says, Then I saw a great white throne who was seated on it. And so this is after that. And then the Lord now comes to judge. And now says, when I, then, I, then I saw a great white throne, him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Then I saw the great dead, small, standing before the throne. So this is when the Lord comes the second time. So remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, chapter 4, Philippians chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, all those scriptures. We know that the Lord is coming again. When he comes, just like we read in John chapter 5, he will resurrect the living and the dead to judge them. Do you understand that? So this is what he's describing here. So everybody, you know, so when I saw, verse 12, that says, and I saw the great dead, great, I saw the dead, great, and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, if you see the, if you read the whole thing from the beginning, this is the description. Some people took the mark of the beast, right? Some people took the mark of the beast, and they died, and they were judged, and their voices, and they were being tormented forever and ever, so to speak. Then after the millennium, people tried to challenge God again, and then God threw them into the fire again, and they were being tormented together with the prophets and the beast and all that. Then after that, there was now judgment. And when the judgment time now came, everybody was now resurrected. And all these evildoers, this time, finally, he now caused it a second death. If you read earlier, I talked about those who were martyrs for Christ. And I said, these people, the second death will not have anything on them. So this is now the second death. And I'll say that this time, all those people whose names are not found in the book of life, together with Hades and death, death itself, which is not a person, Hades itself, which is not a person, 
will be thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. Do you see that? And everybody whose name was not in the book of life will be thrown together into the lake of fire, together with Hades and together with death. When you put everything together, this is what I think. This is what the picture looks like. And it looks like, obviously, you know, I've told you this is eschatology, right? There are some things that we cannot be dogmatic about, right? So, me too. When I finish cooking, I'm going to present it to other theologians and say, am I saying rubbish or not? But this is what I think. You remember when we talked about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and we talked about all the evidence for annihilationism. That means that people, the torment is not going to be conscious and eternal. Right? And we talked about how in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5 to 10, 2 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 to 10, the Lord tells us that evil dwellers are going to be destroyed out of his presence. Do you remember that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, Paul tells us that evil doers are going to be destroyed. The word destroyed there is annihilate. Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, destroy. In Matthew chapter 10, the Lord says, I'm going to destroy. Don't be afraid of him that can kill the body, but be afraid of him that can kill the spirit, destroy the spirit and soul in what? Hell. You know? And then we look at a lot of things that we look at a lot of scripture. James chapter 5 also. John says that don't be a judge of your existing. But let God be the judge. judge the God is the one who can destroy souls. And we looked at all that. And so it seems like as if the evidence that God is going to destroy evildoers, right? He's going to destroy evildoers. The evidence is strong. And it seems like as if in certain points, the fact that people are going to be tormented day and night and they will never rest forever and ever is also what? Strong. But when I now looked at the book of Revelation together in context, and if you are an millennial, right? If you look at everything in millennial, you compare 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and an millennial, and you see how people will sleep and wake up to be the Lord, and God resurrect everybody and judge them. And you put Re Revelation chapter 20 in context. You guys can also study it and check, right? It looks like as if when men, righteous and unrighteous, sleep, they wake up into heaven and hell, whichever one, Lazarus or the rich man, then on judgment day, Jesus will now judge everybody. Now say, everybody, come for your final collecting. On that final day of collection, when everybody will collect water, water, those whose names are not in the book of life, together with Hades and death, will now experience the second death. You know, so you know the evil doers have slept and they've woken up in hell and they're being tormented, like we saw in the earlier part of chapter 20. It now, it now looks like I said, in the final judgment, when Jesus comes, when he's judging everybody, when they wake up, after they have been in hell, he will now give them the second death. And that second death is what destroys... You know, don't forget in 1 Corinthians 15, he said death at that day. He will now say, where is your sting? Because the last enemy that will conquer will be what? Death. God is going to destroy death. So the same way God is destroying death, Hades is also going to destroy those whose names are not in the book of life. So it seems like as if the day that God is destroying death, destroying Hades, is going to destroy those whose days are not in the book of life. Then, of course, those whose days are in the book of life are not going to be with the Lord. That is also the day that we're going to ask yourself, you, what did you do with your ministry? Explain yourself. You, why were you using church for business? You, why did you build gold and see? You know what I'm saying, right? So, it looks like... What did you say? <laughs> 
Praise God. So it looks like, it looks like, from what I'm, if you look at the version of the 20, and I want you guys to, we know we have this one more to discuss it. And I want you to read it, actually read it, and follow it. It looks like as if people go to hell when they sleep and wake up to be destroyed. And the believers will wake up, go to hell, and go for a better. The believers will sleep and wake up to be with the Lord, and then they'll wake up on judgment day to connect according to the work of their hands. That's where it looks. If you read Revelation chapter 20. So it looks like both eternal conscious permits, based on this thing I've said, and annihilation are true. But please, we're discussing. So go and check it out and look at it. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right? There's a lot of scriptures we have to read, but just read it. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read the eschatological chapters. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 5 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, right? Um, which of them ones? Read Revelations chapter um, chapter 6, chapter 7. Those are the ones that talk about judgment. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 20. Read everything in context in one breath, right? And um, yeah, read it like that. That's the way it looks. It looks like I said we're going to sleep, wake up, hell heaven, and then wake up on judgment day to everybody to collect. So I'm, I'm actually eager to hear what you guys think. Um, please take a look at it. I'll talk about it next Wednesday. Hallelujah. And finally, before we close, this one is very brief. Um, there's one scripture that can be a little bit problematic with respect to sleeping and waking up in heaven or in hell or second chance for believing, which I'm not dogmatic about and I'm going to tell you the different beliefs. Let's open it. First Timothy chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, look at all. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God awaited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. But in it, only a few people ate and all were saved through water. So, Jesus wants to make proclamation to imprison spirits. Just go to the next chapter. Just scroll down. First Peter chapter four, verse six says, "Let's read from verse 5. It Says, but they will have they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirits." These two scriptures make it sound strongly like Jesus preaches the death, preaches the gospel to those who are in hell. Preaches the gospel to those who are in hell. And there have been two different views over, obviously, because of the reading and all that. Let me tell you the two different views. I can just talk about them very briefly. St. Augustine and Wayne Grudem, they will tell you that Jesus is not preaching to anybody. If you die, you are going to hell. And that's it once and for all. And they would say that the correct interpretation of this scripture is that it was saying that the spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah. And that's what it was saying as it was in the days of Noah, that only it was saved through, through water. It was saying that the spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah to those people that they should receive the gospel and come into the ark, but they were not saved. 
And so when he was saying that his preached according to those who are in hell, he was not talking about them being in hell right now, and not talking about them him preaching to them while they were currently in hell, but talking about their state that they are now in hell. It was like saying that I was preaching to the president even after he had left. It's not as if, do you understand what I was saying? Right? Or saying, um, just what I'm saying. Basically, he was saying that the spirit of Noah, the spirit of Christ was in Noah preaching to those people in, at that time while they were alive, to repent. So that's what was happening. The Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah to them. And that is not as if Jesus went to hell, but at that time, Jesus wanted to save them so that, so if we read it again, I'll say that, for this is the reason the gospel was proven preached to those who are now dead. It's not as if they were dead when he was preaching. He was preaching to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. If you read it in context, you'll see that Peter was telling them to stay away from worldly practices and not to live in the debauchery and all those things, right? But that they should be eager to preach the gospel and to defend the reason why they have been called saints and all those things. So that's what he was actually preaching. That That's why God used Noah to preach to those people that time, to save them from destruction. Do you understand that exegesis? Do you guys get that exegesis? That that's what he was referring to. There's only a little problem. The problem with that reading is that if you look at verse 19 of chapter 3, if you look at that verse 19 of chapter 3, it starts with, after, look at, if you start from, the, from verse 18, it says, Christ suffered once for the righteous and the righteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. So he was put to death in the words, body, and made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. It's hard to see how that was about Noaster. The after being there is too problematic. Hallelujah. It's too problematic. It's too problematic. In either case, it proves something. It proves that those that are dead are imprisoned spirits. They're not in hell, isn't it? So the issue here now is whether Jesus will still go and preach to some people. St. Augustine will agree them, I think, break off through and co. They don't agree. They don't want to hear that Jesus can preach to anybody. We all need to die. I'm going to hell. Nothing for him. <laughs> they don't want to hear that one. <laughs> but a lot of other people will tell you that ah, after being laid alive, this is after Jesus rose from the dead. And this is where, this is one of the scriptures where Christos Victor, I mean, what they call it, Christos Victor comes from that Jesus descended into hell to plunder hell and all those things. When we read and we hear that Jesus went to hell, they don't want to hear it. Don't say it near them. Right? Obviously, like I said, I'm not dogmatic about it. I think we can just take him to the next two, three minutes before we go. This reading, what do you think? I have the Spirit of God as you also have the Spirit of God. This is exactly what Augustine Awegrim said. That the same scripture where Peter is telling them, go and preach and don't live like people. Cannot be the same scripture where he'll be telling them, even if people die, don't worry, Jesus is going to go and talk to them again. So, uh, so that's their own argument that it does not make sense. But that after being, it's hard to ignore. It's hard to ignore. Uh, can I say something here? If you look at the scripture well, what the scripture is even referring to is what Jesus did past tense. Even if you want to read it as Jesus went to hell, it's past tense, not future tense. So you can't even use the scripture as hope. That if you don't preach to the person next to you, when the person gets to hell, Jesus will still go and meet him. We don't know about Jesus has an escalator in heaven 
for going to hell and heaven every time we're going to be preaching to people. Like when it's not Mary in Catholic church, there's always going to purgatory, so we're going to be delivering people. So there's nothing about the scripture that even suggests that in the first place. What people like to do is to hope that if he has done it before, he will do it again. Same God now, same God right now. Hallelujah. Jesus died once. He's not doing it again. Hallelujah. So any other thoughts? Any other thoughts? Dr. Femi, please speak, please. I agree. You guys are both, they are, they are sounding like this is, this, this um, conversation is exactly what theologians are having. Senior men, no, no, be saying this thing. Senior men, this is the exact conversation that they are having. The exact conversation they are having. Um, I want to say something. It begs the question of people who are mentally ill that could not properly hear the gospel. People that the gospel was preached to them, but it was preached rubbish. Children are about people in South America now that are preaching to them all kind of babanao Christianity that have not really heard the gospel. Um, children who died before they could consciously, even though they can do evil, but they could not understand the gospel or enough to believe it because children commit sin, but they might not know, they may not have the ability to receive the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, people have never people who have never heard the gospel. What about them? This is the answer that I'll give everybody. And this is the answer you should hold. It's biblical. I'm dogmatic about this one. We should be dogmatic about this one. Is that we are not sure. We are not clear. But we will not, because of that now, tweak what we know that is clear. We will not, because of that, now say, Jesus is not the only way. Because some theologians actually fall into that error. And that's why even when you do the apologetics and all that, you have to be careful. Don't just swallow everything. You know, there's a people like Glenn Craig and all that. They believe that Jesus is not the only way. Conscience is another way. I don't think so. And I'm not saying that um, I know more than him with all humility and respect. But Jesus is clear. I am the, the, and the, no one comes to the Father except, hallelujah. Somebody say today. Today. <laughs> hey, these guys are not charismatic. No, these ones are not charismatic. These ones are charismatic. Praise God. So that's what we know. So we cannot say because of that now, we will now say Jesus is one of the ways or Jesus will have another way. Romans chapter 2 poses an interesting question of um, what do you call it? Um, conscience and all that. Romans chapter 2 actually tells us that there is a kind of judgment based on conscience that the Lord is going to give to people. I think um, I think that scripture, if we're going to read it very well, maybe we should talk about it next Sunday and all that. That scripture actually talks about um, people who were living before Jesus came, that lived compared to the law, people that had the law. So the people that had the law, and then they were the Gentiles. Do you understand that? So, and the Old Testament saints that were judged, okay, now this is a question that I expected people to ask and nobody has asked, which is, what was the standard? For the Old Testament saints. Right? What was the standard for the Old Testament saints? Ayala, Judah was the top. Okay, please give, give, give them a mic. <laughs> what was the standard for the Old Testament saints, which seemed to apply to those Gentiles of that time, where their Bible says that their conscience was excusing them or not excusing them? Right. Okay. It's almost time. We have to move fast. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Very good question. Let me answer the question. Our redemption of our bodies, Abby. Yes. Okay, sorry. So when Jesus comes, he said, when Jesus comes, he's coming only once. No, I'm not like Jamal Kato. Jesus is coming once. And when he comes and he gives us that final judgment, those that to life and to death, when we resurrect, we're going to resurrect to the new body. And what we are going to is a new heaven and a new earth. Do you understand that? This world will be destroyed and burnt away and we'll be going to a new heaven and a new earth, a new civilization, free of Revelation chapter 21, free of sickness and sorrow and pain and all those things. So when we sleep, we are awake to be with the Lord and on judgment day, after judgment, we are going to a new earth. So that's where our new bodies will be useful. That's where our new redeemed bodies are going to be. Yes. Yes. Yeah, obviously. Oh, no, no, with, without, not with our bodies, oh, just our souls, our disembodied souls. Is it, yeah. It's a very good question, I don't know. That's what the Bible says, I actually don't know. If the spirit was the new you, the real you, in the new earth, we won't need a body. So, obviously, right, when we wake up and we are with the Lord, it is not the same plane of existence as the new earth. So, obviously, God, it even coheres from what happened in, in Genesis chapter 1, that when God created us, he expected us to have bodies that we used to walk. So, that's what I was saying, that when we are with the Lord, in quotes, right, there are certain things we're supposed to do here that we cannot do when we're with the Lord. That's why our time here is important. So while we have our bodies, while we are spirit, soul, and body, that's the time when we can do what God intends for us to do. So when we're with the Lord, obviously, we are lounging in Abraham, with Abraham and chilling with Paul and all those things. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not using our bodies. But in the new earth, we're going to rise up with a new body and we're going to be in the new heaven and the new earth doing stuff. Well, only God knows what stuff we're going to be doing. But new stuff. They said there'll be dinosaurs there, lions, tigers, and all of us will be playing together, hanging out. We'll be playing golf and all kinds of things forever and ever. Playing table tennis and yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> good. So yeah. I just answer your question. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I get your question. It, it shouldn't matter, really, right? It, it shouldn't matter if time is going to be unquantifiable. We're just trying to follow as much as possible because, of course, if you want to philosophize it and stretch it, it can begin to look alike. But the truth is that it is just to follow what the Bible says. And that's actually why it says sleep because our bodies will not be active. So our bodies are sleeping, but our spirits are with the Lord. Our inner man will be with the Lord. So that, you know, that's part of, actually part of the reason why it says sleep because your body will not be awake. But your soul and your spirits, which are indivisible, will be with the Lord. Just the follow Yeah, that's what John Makato believes. He's a heretic. No worry, we'll talk about it next week. A millennialist. I'm not sure, but I think he's talking about his first, first, Peter, first Peter commentary. I talk about the first Peter commentary, right? Yeah. So talk about the first Peter commentary. You don't agree that St. Augustine for that this idea that not everything was when Gregory doesn't believe it, that uh, Jesus went to preach to those people again in the dead, have you? Okay, you believe that that Jesus went to preach to them in the dead, have you? Well, 
Please give him the mic. We have to go. People have homes to go. So yeah, let's be fast. Give him the mic. So we'll continue next week Wednesday. Please, these things are for you to think about and ruminate about. Read your Bible and study them very well. And uh, we know what the central things are. So let's keep them in mind. And then we know the things that we can debate about that we need not cause unnecessarily, unnecessary issues around. All right, so go ahead. Hebrews 9.25. Can we read this before as we close? Hebrews 9.25. That's the final scripture. Verse 27, rather. Hebrews 9.27. Hebrews 9.27. As well, it's 27. Okay, so let me tell you the standard covenant position. Standard covenant position is that anybody that doesn't accept that, as some people that never heard the gospel will just go to hell, is assuming that somehow God owes preaching the gospel to everybody. I don't agree with that class. It sounds funny to me. And I'm not saying it emotionally. I'm saying it from the sense of what we know about God's justice and system. Um, he's no irrespectable person. What I said to one, I said to all. I'm not saying that I don't agree on non. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing on psychological grounds of emotional grounds. That, oh my God, that's very me. I've already accepted that he's God and what he wants to do. If he does it, I cannot question him. I know that when I stand before him and he explains, I will not even be able to say you are not just. You understand that? So I've set my mind with with that. But from what we know, he's no irrespectable person. It doesn't sound right. I mean, it's the same guy of God that will say, "What I will give the I will, I will give the teacher more strokes than I'll give the novice, because also how much is given, much is also what expected." That parable in law tells us that God's kind of justice system is that He demands according to people what He has given to them. So if He has not given the gospel to people by that same logic, right? This is not a paradoxical issue where one side is evidence and another side is evidence, even though they look contradictory. One side is evidence, the other is not. And the evidence that we have is that God will demand from everybody according to what he has given them. So, unto whom much is given, much is also expected. So, that means that unto whom nothing is given, do you understand that? So, this idea that God doesn't have to preach to everybody, he will create some people, never preach to them, and send them to hell, which is Brecon's position. Grudem also, I think. Grudem also. Ah, doesn't work for me. The other side of it is Lenin Craig. That if you don't hear the gospel, just have good conscience, you go to heaven. <laughs> that one too. Yeah, I don't know. Hallelujah. Somebody say, I don't know. <laughs> you guys are laughing. And this is not a joke. It's not asking, what do you say? What do we know for sure? That God is what? Just. This is a very important thing to keep in your mind, though, as you are defending the gospel. I don't know is a good answer and is on purpose. Jesus did it on purpose. You can see all the revelation that he gave us. He did it on purpose. I don't know is a legitimate answer. The Lord did not tell us it's a legitimate answer. What we know for sure is that God is just. And if someone finds himself in hell, even though the gospel, theoretically, right? Let's do theoretically. If someone finds himself in hell, even though the gospel was never preached to him, when you look at the case, you will not say, ah, God did not try. You yourself will agree that, no, now. You said, even the person in hell will know. Because what the Bible tells us is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The person will know that, ah, no. Me save. You know that kind of thing. So, so yeah. Next week, we're going we're gonna to go and look at the theories of the millennium and tribulation. And then, uh, please, I want to ask you for something. Please make sure that you look at what we discussed today. 
really think about it, look at it, think about it, tell me what your thoughts. I'm particularly interested in discussing um, this theory of hell after death and annihilation after judgment, that kind of thing. I will just look at everything. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's think about it. Hallelujah. All right, guys, let's bow our heads and let's give those things. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.